Bravo! Bravo! What are you bravoing about? That performance. It was first rate. Yes, it was good. But only one act I've ever seen deserved a bravo. Oh, really? Who was that? Lady Beth McIntosh and her singing parakeets. <laughs> I'll never forget her closing night at the palace. What happened? Well, she fell into a box of birdseed just before going on stage, and she was picked to death by the parakeets. It's <laughs> a hard act to follow. Yeah, well, I was there and I cried. Really? What did you cry? Bravo! Bravo! <laughs> Hi-ho, and welcome once again to a feat of lunatic daring, the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, Muppetational podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. My name is Chad. I'm here with my co-host, Nick Jackson. Nick, we've reached the end of season one. It's a weird feeling. It sort of crept up on me. These last two episodes do feel like they're closing out on purpose. I've been watching some later episodes on Disney Plus with my kids, and what I noticed watching these episodes is it's starting to feel fully formed. <laughs> this last batch of episodes, I'd say this last like six episodes or something, really feel like the Muppet Show that I know. They feel more secure. Confident. Yes, confident. They've spent enough time kind of doing the legwork and unlocking the characters. Mm -hmm. At least the key ones. There's still several, one major one, in my opinion, that has still not at all reached his potential. He's going to get a little shining moment here coming up in one of these episodes. Mm -hmm. This is A Feed of Lunatic Daring. We're a podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. Before we start, we'd like to ask you to check us out on social media, at Lunatic Daring on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And then, of course, LunaticDaring.com, where you can listen to our latest episodes, check out our watch list, and check out our bibliography. Ready to get things started? Let's get things started. Uh, thank you, thank you, and welcome again to The Muppet Show. And our special guest star tonight is one of the funniest ladies in the business and one of the nicest, Miss Kay Ballard. So we think it's going to be a great show tonight, and if you stick around, we think you'll agree. But right now, let's get things moving on The Muppet Show. First up is episode 123. 123, wow. With a special guest, Kay Ballard. Produced November 1976, aired in January and March the next year. I didn't know much about Kay Ballard coming into this. I, I have very little concept of who she is. Even after watching it? I know that she's uh, a musician, and like I, I couldn't name a song that she was famous for. Catherine Gloria Ballada was born in Cleveland, Ohio on November 20th, 1925. And I would just like to say, go Browns, go Cavs. Her parents were immigrants from the Calabria region of Italy, which if you look at a map is the, the tip of the boot that's kicking Sicily in the ass. She caught the performing bug by the time she was five, was a class clown in high school, and during that time worked on and honed several celebrity impressions. I'm not sure when she adopted her stage name. Like, I see where her stage name came from looking at her birth name, but I couldn't find anything in my research as to, like, when she decided to go by Kay Ballard. Kay started her career as a musical comedian in the 1940s touring with band leader Spike Jones and his orchestra as a vocalist and a flute-slash-tuba player, which, after watching the episode, checks out. Kay was known as a physical comedian, an impressionist, a singer, a musician, and even sometimes kind of a stand-up, which of course led her to TV. Her television debut was on Henry Morgan's Great Talent Hunt. She played one of the Wicked Stepsisters in a live TV version of Cinderella, starring Julie Andrews, became a regular on The Perry Como Show, along with future Get Smart star Don Adams and future Hollywood Square Paul Lind. This one I thought was cute. She played Lucy Van Pelt on a 1962 record called Peanuts. 
on which actors dramatize scenes from the Charles Schultz comic strip. Sometimes I lie awake at night listening for a voice that will cry, We like you, Charlie Brown. <laughs> you should be like me, Charlie Brown. I don't care if anyone likes me or not. I like me, and that's what counts. Out of all the people I've ever met, I like me the best. I like everything about me. The way I dress, the way I talk, the way I live, the way I laugh. Good grief. The way I cry, the way I walk, the way I eat, the way I sleep, the way I read, the way I breathe, the way Fantastic. I... You know why I'm happy? Because I like myself, that's why. Yes, sir, I'm a great admirer of me. And kind of what the big thing she was known for, really, was she was one of the title leads in the sitcom The Mothers-in-Law, co-starring Eve Arden as uh, neighbors whose children marry each other, forcing their families to kind of be closer than they ever wanted to be. I'm Eve Arden, and this is Kay Ballard. My daughter... Her daughter, huh? ...married her son. My son. And that makes us the mothers-in-law. Yes, that makes us the mothers-in-law. Uh, the show ran from 67 to 69, producing 56 episodes. She made appearances on The Patty Duke Show, Doris Day, Match Game, guest starred on the CBS sitcom Alice, which was a big staple in my house when I was a kid. She also did a million, of course, talk and variety shows like so many of these people, Sullivan, Parr, Carson, Red Skelton, Carol Burnett, Mike Douglas, etc. Her biggest successes seem to have come on stage. She made her Broadway debut in Three to Get Ready in 1946, and then had parts in Once in a Lifetime, Annie Get Your Gun, uh, which we've talked about before, and the burlesque show Top Banana. Uh, I want you to put a pin in that and remember Top Banana for when we get to the Milton Berle episode next season. In 1954, she was in the original Broadway cast of The Golden Apple, which is a musical adaptation of the Iliad and the Odyssey, in which she played Helen of Troy. It's a lazy afternoon And the farmer leaves his reaping in the meadow cows are sleeping and the speckled trout stop leaping upstream Kay also played two of the great white way's most fabulous famous women mama rose and dolly around that time she released her autobiography called how i lost 10 pounds in 53 years <laughs> that right there gives me major carrie fisher vibes that sounds like a carrie fisher book title uh looking at her filmography there's not much on there i've seen really and i've seen a lot but what jumped out to me was she was in the original 1976 Freaky Friday with Jodie Foster and Barbara Harris, Richard Lester's The Ritz uh, that same year with Rita Moreno and Jerry Stiller. And most importantly, she played the mayor in Bob Clark's 1999 masterpiece, Baby Geniuses. Get ready. Naps are history. I don't know what you're feeding that kid, but we're going to get some. Kathleen Turner, Christopher Lloyd, Kim Cattrall. And Allie McBeal's Peter McNichol, Baby Geniuses. Have you said Dada yet? Nah, that's so stupid. Say it, you'll go nuts. Okay. Dada! There has never been, nor will there ever be, another motion picture like it. On TV, she did episodes of The Love Boat, Fantasy Island, Trapper John, M.D., and appeared in an episode of the Super Mario Brothers Super Show as a character named Madame Agogo. I probably saw that when I was 12 or 13, but I do not remember it at all. In her later years, she still ruled the stage. Kay did the Pirates of Penzance on Broadway. She was in revivals of Funny Girl and High Spirits, did a female production of The Odd Couple, and was in the stage version of The Full Monty. 
She had a very large personality and was often compared to Carol Channing or last week's guest star, Ethel Merman, uh, neither of whom had stellar film careers either. She never married uh, and was a breast cancer survivor, which surprised no one because apparently she was a major force to be reckoned with. Kay Ballard retired from performing at the age of 89 and died four years later in 2019 at her home in Rancho Mirage, California. Her career in entertainment spanned eight decades. Fun fact, in 1954, Kay was the first person to record the song Fly Me to the Moon, which of course would become one of Frank Sinatra's flagship tunes. Spring is like on Jupiter and Mars. In other words, hold my hand. In other words, darling, kiss me. A woman of many talents. You felt she was a musician. She was. But she was also a comedian. She was also an actor. If there's anybody that we've seen thus far that you could just kind of slap a sticker on that just says entertainer, I think it would be Kay Ballard. <laughs> like, she seems to be just whatever you need to do to entertain people, she's got a skill in that category. It's the Muppet Show with our special guest, Darmus Kay Ballard. listeners and Nick, uh, be precious with these last two opening sequences because they're going to change. We're going to be losing the uh, wedding cake risers. Savor them if you're a fan. But after the opening things, we get our first musical number with the country trio, the Jim Henson, Jerry Nelson, and Frank Oz puppets singing Roger Miller's In the Summertime. In the summertime when all the trees and leaves are green And the red bird sings I'll be blue Cause you don't want my love Some other time that's what you say when I want you Then you laugh at me and make me cry Cause you don't want my love You don't seem to care a thing about me You'd rather live without me than to have my arms around you When the nights are cold and you're so all alone Ding dong, ding dong, ding 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 dong it was originally released as a song called You Don't Want My Love, uh, as Jim's character would say in the, in the thing, um, but is legally known as In the Summertime. It was later a hit for Andy Williams, who will be a guest star later, and we will hear this song again when Roger Miller himself comes on as a guest star in season three. There's not a ton to say about numbers like this, it's just kind of a straightforward presentation of a song, but damn, the performances were good. And the way Jim, the line, You Don't Want My Love, and the way Jim delivered it every time, Cause you don't want my love with a little scrunched up face <laughs> was, I thought, hysterical. Frank looked like he was having a really good time in the background, too. Yeah, and Frank got to do this kind of, this deep, I don't know, this scatting or whatever it is, but he had this kind of deep voice. This is actually the last time we're going to see the country trio. Really? Yeah. Remember, they came about, they weren't created for the Muppet Show, they were created for, like, talk show appearances and stuff. I think the first time they were ever used was on the Perry Como show, so, like, they were never really meant to be part of the Muppet Show. They're going to get phased out a little bit. Mm-hmm. 
if I could own any Muppet that was ever in existence, I would own the Jim Henson Muppet. Mm-hmm. Palisades, when they made their Muppets action figures, they actually made a special edition action figure of the Jim Henson Muppet puppet. Nice. That uh, is very expensive, and I still would like to own one at some point. It's a fun song, and it's a song that's made a lot more fun by the performances. The way they jiggle around when they're playing the guitars, the way Jim is scrunching up his face when he's singing, and, and there's just so much personality that they get out of these puppets. And a lot of that comes from what we've talked about since the first episode, right? The innovations in puppet construction that Jim created and then helped develop with others. You can't do this with Kukla Fran and Ollie. You can't do these little scrunchy faces. We're seeing a lot of scrunchy faces in these couple of episodes. I don't know if you noticed that. Yeah, they're playing with the form and the fact that you can bend felt in certain ways. Which they've always done to a, a, a some degree, but yes, between this and we'll see with the Venda face and everything, that they're really playing with the fact that they're puppets. So the backstage story for this episode is that uh, my man Floyd is uh, ready to walk. He's, he's done. The entire Muppet Orchestra, and remember, this is not the Electric Mayhem quitting. It's the Muppet Orchestra wants to quit. Currently a different entity, although there's like an 80% overlap. Are you part of Parliament? Funkadelic. Exactly. It, it kind of is that way. Hey, Kermit. So long, man. Hey, but, but Floyd, the show is on. You should be in the orchestra pit. Sorry, man. I'm anklin'. Anklin'? Yeah, anklin'. You know, leaving. I've come to the coda. I'm using the door marked exit. Like a banana in the presence of ice cream, I intend to split. But, but, but Floyd, you can't just leave us. Uh, listen, Kermit, you're a nice little dude in your own amphibian way, but I just can't take it anymore. But what's the matter? It's the theme song. The theme? Kermit, you are talking to Floyd Pepper, the hippest of the hip. I mean, I have a room for life at the home for the chronically groovy. Can we just single out the fact that this is the first time that Kermit didn't want someone to go? <laughs> yeah, like, he's typically, he's like, okay, if you want to walk, I mean, that's an option. But with Floyd, he's like, Floyd, don't leave. I can change. It's okay. I love the way Jerry has Floyd walk in this episode. <laughs> he gives him this kind of this trot almost as he's walking around. This is really the first time, and it's not going to be the last, that Floyd takes kind of front and center in the backstage story. It's also kind of meta, and this is the penultimate episode of this, the first season, but this is also the first time we've heard any reference to the song or to the opening outside of just hearing the opening. I love that when Floyd was like explaining to Kermit how much he hated the opening song. Every week I have to come in here and play dun 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 Nice. It's embarrassingly square. And I don't play square. And Kermit starts bopping along like, yeah, it's great. <laughs> like Kermit starts dancing. Like, I don't understand what the problem is. In this moment, we do get the trumpet girl. Uh, yeah, but, but Floyd, none of the other musicians have complained. Drag city. Yeah, we're going to beat feet. It's Aaron Oscar doing it, but it's the only time she ever speaks in the entire history of the show. Kay doing a duet and dancing with, man, Thog gets all the ladies. He's got that drippy dog thing going on. I get it. Thog and her sing a song called Oh Babe, What Would You Say? Have I a hope or half a chance to even ask if I could dance with you? Which is written by Norman Smith, which he released under his stage name Hurricane Smith in 1973. It was actually a number three hit. It was also done by Liza Minnelli later. Uh, Thog had actually already performed this song with Julie Andrews on the Julie Andrews Hour in 1973. 
uh, yeah, and I just wrote Ladies Love Thog. Although I found this one to be a little lackluster. The thing is, I, I agree, but we see Kay shine elsewhere in the episode. So I think that they were just, like, if especially if this is something that they'd done before on the Julie Andrews Hour, they might have just been filling time. Part of it's the dress. Couldn't I couldn't handle the dress too much for me. You know, every time Thog comes on, I want him to sing. Pardon me, miss, but I've never done this with a real live girl. <laughs> Thog has graduated from incel to bonafide ladies, man. I guess he had the Harvey Corman one, but... Mm -hmm. Everything else Thog does just seems to be singing and dancing with, you know, beautiful lady guest stars. You know, that's his thing. I mean, there's what's the there's not even really a conceit, right? They're just kind of singing together. I mean, he's a little bit clumsy. I think he steps on her foot or like accidentally. Yeah backhands are at some point. I remember watching it and wishing it was another take on the Ruth Buzzy bit. That was significantly more kinetic. Yeah, this just kind of sat there. It was pleasant, but I didn't find it particularly interesting. What I did find interesting was in between Statler and Waldorf, Statler says, makes a really gross joke, and uh, Waldorf punches him in the face for being a pervert. Mm -hmm. well, I could watch Kay Ballard all night. Mm, I tried it once, but she pulled the shade down. <laughs> you dirty old man. That's a little rough, and I started to write it down as, like, problematic, and then Waldorf decked him, and I was like, eh, not so problematic. <laughs> Comeuppance, yes. So we're kind of getting this dynamic that Staller kind of is the, you know, he's the one that went backstage to talk to Valerie Harper. Mm -hmm. He's the one that seems to make the more sexist jokes. Staller seems to be the dirty old man of the two. Kermit had convinced the orchestra to stick around to play for Kay Ballard's number, because apparently Floyd's a big fan of hers, and so they do. And the band wants to leave again, and he reminds them that they have another number. Listen, if you do, next week we'll have a new theme. Oh, yeah, well, maybe we'll stay then. Good, because your noble conductor, Nigel, here has offered to write a new theme. We're leaving. Yeah, but, but why? He wrote the first one, man. There's a lot of Nigel in these episodes. There's... Which is bizarre. There is, and I, I imagine he sticks around more than some of the other people. There's a, a scene, I think, from next episode. That almost feels like a send-off to some of the characters. I know I know what one you're talking about, and it's also a send-off to some performers as well. Because Nigel originally, of course, was a character performed by Jim. Okay, Zoot, it's time for your solo. Have you looked over the music? But in these episodes, Nigel is performed by John Lovelady. I always thought it was kind of a hip tune. Nigel's kind of had a rough go of it the whole time. He wasn't a very effective host. His own orchestra doesn't have any respect for him. Here's a Muppet News flag! Dateline, Boston, Massachusetts. Mrs. Gretchen Powers of that city is trying to enter the Guinness Book of Records by completing the world's longest sentence. There's a woman, played by Kay, of course, who is trying to set the world record for the longest sentence ever spoken. And he goes to her by remote, and she's talking. And the joke is she just keeps 
talking. And the dog fell over the nose of the tree, went into the spaghetti factory, while six million men marched in their foghorns under a double-decker bus whose onion soup spoke of undermining uh, Mrs. Powers, the if we could interrupt for a moment. We're both writers, Nick. This isn't a sentence. Eventually, you have to stop calling something a sentence, right? Proust had a sentence that went on for over... I, I say that as someone who's not a fan of the fact that he had a sentence go on for over a page and a half. But if you keep throwing in subclauses, I guess you can sort of... Shahara's audit. Maybe. Uh, Mrs. Power's husband, Carl, said it makes about as much sense as anything she's said. He said this from his home at the Clinging Vine Home for the Crazed. I would argue that if I got out my elements of style, I don't think I could find a way to define this as a sentence. But you're right. Clauses nested within clauses nested within clauses, perhaps. Everything, she kept going from non or seeming non-sequitur to non-sequitur, but it was all... If she's trying to do, like, a weird beat imitation, this is my 32-day howl. I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness, starving, hysterical, naked, dragging themselves through the Negro streets at dawn looking for an angry fix. I liked it, though, because it was was completely uninteractive on her part. Oh, yeah, no, she knew what he was trying to do, because he was trying to get her to stop. Kermit and Piggy dancing together. We do. This is the first time we've seen this. Piggy tells a real rip roaring joke. At least she thought it was. Il canto e lavore, my bambino. Oh. Is that Italian? No, it's pig Latin. <laughs> well, the other two pigs in the background thought it was pretty funny too. Yeah. yeah, the pig Latin joke. Yeah, I liked Zoot's joke. My family has quite a history. You can find a record of them in the 17th century. Ah, so is my family. You can find a record of them in the 19th precinct. And, you know, you get that. Zoot probably comes from a family of, you know, you get that. Yeah, I got that. The way Piggy just lost her, just lost her mind after the joke. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Was really funny. She actually started to kind of animal. She started almost kind of flop on the floor. I was waiting. It seemed like she was about ready to full on dip Kermit. I think there's a lot in both of these episodes. There's a lot of Frank and Jim playing around. Mm -hmm. We get our UK spot, which is an odd one. Paw from the Gugalala Jubilee Jug Band and uh, Rover Joe from the Muppet Musicians of Bremen sitting on, on the porch with him. Singing a song called Life Gets Tejas, don't it? Well, the sun comes up and the sun goes down. The hands on the clock keep moving around. I'll just get up and it's time to sit down. Life gets tedious, don't it? This is a weird song it's from 1947 by American country music singer-songwriter Carson J. Robinson. It's kind of a, a forgotten but important country music star. He's very He was very much known for his event songs. He had songs called The Wreck of the Shenandoah, Remember Pearl Harbor, The John T. Scopes Trial. That was the name of one of his songs, The John T. Scopes Trial. So he would write these songs about, like, real events. And he had a band called The Buckaroos. <laughs> Mouse is chewing on the pantry door. He's been at it for a month or more. When he gets through, he'll sure be sore, cause there ain't a darn thing in there. But this one, Life Gets Tedious, Don't It, uh, is actually his most famous song. I checked out a couple other versions of it, because this is kind of delivered more like a spoken word, mm-hmm. and they all are kind of like that. I could see that. I found one where the old, great old movie star Walter Brennan, who was a great Hollywood character actor, recorded it too. 
hound dog howling, sure forlorn. Leggy's dog that was ever born. He's a howling cause he's sitting on a thorn. I'm just too tired to move over. You know, I try to use my kids as a judge sometimes. They checked out during this. <laughs> it's just an old man talking about how bad life is, so I don't think seven and four-year-olds want to hear that. It reminded me of Bremen a little bit. Yeah. Uh, everything about the set seemed like it. He sings about how tedious life can be, and then his house falls down on him. I do want to give credit for the UK spots not just being Rolf at a piano. I loved that, right? Yeah. But it is nice to see them varying it a bit more. So then we get one of my favorite talk spots, probably my favorite talk spot of the year. It's it's definitely up there. So Kermit is discussing his problems with the with the orchestra, with the band, with Kay. She herself, you know, says she's a musician. And it's kind of like that scene in Airplane. Oh, stewardess, I speak jive. Oh, good. <laughs> oh, forgot about that scene. <laughs> Just hang loose blood. She's going to catch up on the rebound on the med side. What it is, big mama. My mama didn't raise no dummies. I duck her rap. Cut me some slack, Jack. Chomp don't want to help. Chomp don't get the help. Say can't hang, say seven up. Jive ass dude don't got no brains anyhow. She's like, oh, well, I can talk to the musicians for you. And who shows up? Animal. Animal tells her all of his problems, what's going on, but it's in nonsense, but she understands what he's saying. Why are you guys so unhappy? Oh, well, I, you've got a point. I'm willing to say you have a point. Kermit! Yeah. And then reinterprets it back to Kermit. Animal feels a deep-seated hostility. In what he interprets as a demeaning situation, right? TK, you do understand musicians, don't you? Try. It takes a pretty quick turn, though, because Kay starts singing the Muppet Show theme and turns out that she likes it. And Animal's not happy about that. Personally, I don't think that... Animal gets vicious. <laughs> he lives up to his name for sure, decides to take a bite out of crime. He is so angry that she has turned on him to support the idea of this stupid theme song that he hates that he just flat out bites her <laughs> and attacks her. And then she gets crafty. She redirects to Kermit, but she's like, we're just discussing, but like... Yeah, but she knows what discussing means. <laughs> this is how Animal discusses. And there was something about the way that they kept cutting back to how Kermit looked at a given instance. Reminded me of that, uh, I can't remember which pilot it was from, but the wrestling scene. Yeah, that was in Sex and Violence. Where they're just seeing just how much they can contort Kermit. Yeah, but this was so much funnier. Oh yeah, significantly better. I want to see the footage of Frank and Jim back there. Well, just hearing him shout, This guy! And again, this is their brilliant staging, right? Using this little platform, this stage for them to disappear behind and then come back up in a different position. Animal like basically take a take a jump off the top rope and go back down and Kermit yell. And then he eventually basically ties Kermit. And that doesn't quite tie Kermit into a knot. Kind of squishes him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really funny. It's just a good bit of physical humor with Jim and Frank wrestling around with their puppets. Um, I bet that they were having a blast. Is there anything else I can help you with? How are you at notifying next of kin? I wrote down meh for this next one. 
you see the punchline coming, but it's... The barber. Yeah. And the, the cuts to Statler and Waldorf are a nice touch, but... That, to me, felt like they knew it wasn't great. There was that, but it also it allowed them to get rid of the puppet. Yeah, it also helps create the illusion. Mm-hmm. A character that's a ball of hair, who apparently is like from a rock band who's broken up, and so he wants his, uh, his hair cut short. And the barber cuts his hair, and at the end he sneezes, and there's nobody left. <laughs> Rats, I think I've just lost a customer. Kermit sends George out to clean up all the hair. Floyd tells Kermit that the band has agreed not to leave if Floyd is allowed to write the new theme song. And Floyd has one of my favorite lines from the episode. Oh, oh, that'll be fine with me. No, it won't, man. Uh, Why not? You hate my music. You won't understand it. Now listen here, I'm pretty hip too, you know. Not hip enough. Nobody understands my music. I mean, I don't even understand it. You don't? If I didn't know I was a genius... I wouldn't listen to the trash I write. I love this portrait of Floyd as a musician who's so avant-garde and hip that even he doesn't like his stuff. But Floyd's going to take a stab at the theme song. We're going to hear it, though. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you in on a secret. I don't hate it. It, it reminds me of... We'll, we'll cover that when we get to it, I guess. It's there, there's, there's a very obvious, I think, inspiration for it. Now we get, as we talked about before, uh, David Laser. They spent a lot of money building Vendaface. He told them you got to use it more than once. Well, here's the second time. We get a very, very long Vendaface scene. Before, though, the machine was a psychiatrist, right? When Fozzie was using it? Mm-hmm. Now it's a facelift machine. Hello, I am Vendaface, the world's first fully automated facelift machine. An ugly Muppet comes up, puts a quarter in, and it does what you were talking about, right? Playing with the felt, playing with the puppet. Takes all the ugly face pieces off, puts face pieces back onto it to make him look pretty, and turns around. You have a pretty woman, and they're happy. And then a beautiful woman walks up to the Venda face to get a, a facelift, and it just gives her all the ugly parts from the last person. Mm-hmm. I thought it went on too long. Whoever was operating the Venda face, the two little hands, was able to actually kind of put together the Muppets' faces with those pinchers, which I thought was kind of cool. It's not fair to say that it took me out of it, but the sound effects that were made by the person operating the Vendaface reminded me of the years that I did improv when I was in college, where you just, like, anytime you open a door, you do that. So we go backstage and... Floyd has written a new theme song. The Muppet Orchestra has set up in the in the green room, basically, or backstage. And uh, Floyd tells him he's written a piece called Fugue for Frog. Kermit says he loves the title, and Floyd says, Good, because you'll hate the rest. What would you compare this piece of music to? Honestly, it reminds me of a lot of late night fills, like when, uh, when Colbert or Conan O'Brien come back from uh, a commercial break and the band just plays them in. It makes me think of that, I guess. Muppet Wiki compared it to the music of Frank Zappa, which is not wrong either. Yeah. I don't think. It feels very Zappa-esque. I could see Zappa being someone who would say that he couldn't even listen to his own music. I'm not sure who wrote this piece. Maybe Sam Pottle or one of the other musicians on staff, but I couldn't find any credit for actual, actually for Fugue for Frog. Kermit was not a fan. I mean, nobody was. I mean, even Floyd's not a fan, and he wrote it. I kind of liked it. I thought it was fun. This this backstage story is interesting. It kind of, it does have an ending, but it has an ending that should carry forward and doesn't. Mm-hmm. 
So we get our final number. The band comes out on stage. They want to quit, but they don't want to abandon Kay Ballard. And they play, with Kay, they play a, a song called One Note Samba from 1962. This was one of my favorite bits. This is just a little samba built upon a single note. All the notes are bound to follow, but the root is still that note. Yeah, it's a song. It's got a weird history. I think it was like Portuguese and it's first recorded in 1960 by a guy named Jao Gilberto. In 1963, it became more well-known after being featured on a Grammy-winning Bossa Nova album called Jazz Samba. A few people who have recorded it, Barbara Streisand, Duke Ellington, Quincy Jones, Frank Sinatra, who I guess has never met a standard that he hasn't recorded at least once. The song's fine, but what makes this is picky. We've talked about them establishing things and figuring things out. They've figured out the A gold mine is Piggy going head to head with female guest stars. We haven't seen her this episode really either. I mean, she was in the at the dance sketch, but yeah, no, this is Piggy's big big scene in the episode. If you'll notice, they're really figuring out like one real good source of humor is Piggy going at it with the guest star, not even going at each other, but like trying to show up the guest star. Because you get the impression in this that she's not supposed to be out there. Kay seemed surprised to see her, and she'd keep popping back with a different instrument. <laughs> Kay starts off, I think, with a clarinet, and then Piggy comes out with a trumpet, and then Kay goes and gets a saxophone. And I thought they were going to keep one-upping each other, but then Piggy comes back with a kazoo. <laughs> like, she scales back. And at one point, of course, she comes out playing a cowbell. <laughs> I was watching this with my girls, and when Piggy came out with the kazoo, they lost their minds. I don't know why, but I was expecting them to uh, pull back at the end with... She had the French horn. And cast the nets, and then, yeah, Kay comes and shows her up by playing the tuba baritone whatever it is very funny number just a great interplay between Piggy and and, and Kay (laughs) so we get to the closing and the band wants Kay to sign a petition about the song and Kay tells Kermit that she loves all the Muppets except for wait a minute I take that back there's one exception I'm uh, I'm not too sure about Miss Piggy because I think she's very honky and they get into a fight piggy karate chops k but then like they keep going at it like she's smacking piggy across the face and shaking her and stuff it's like the first guest star to fight back but here's the thing the band at the end of this the band's thing still isn't settled they're basically on strike so what do we get for the closing credits rolf says that he does think it's kind of square we also get rolf playing it by himself i didn't catch that you're right This is the only time in the history of The Muppet Show where the end music, the end piece of music, is not performed by the full orchestra. It is just performed by Rolf on a piano because the rest of the band has quit. That, of course, doesn't come back next week. <laughs> you know, there's no continuity here. So we never get to see what their settlement was for this labor dispute. I imagine it went down something like Fozzie's uh, wage dispute a couple episodes back. Where they really don't have any other choices. 
Well, just Kermit's like, okay, if you want to play that way, we can do exactly what you're asking for because you've only looked at half the equation, but sure. Where are they going to go? Who's going to hire those guys? I thought Kay was a good guest star. Yeah, she is. She is a really solid one. I said she gives me the same vibe as like Ethel Merman did. I think she really played well with the Muppets, and I thought it was a very well done episode, and I love a good funny lady, and I think she was great. It's the Muppet Show with our special guest stars, the Mummenshans. So, Nick, as a child, many things confused me, like church, uh, long division. And like girls, you know? Yeah, that stopped in childhood. But the single most perplexing thing in the life of young Chad Shonk is the Mummenchants on The Muppet Show. Watching these uh, episodes again, I realize that they're like emblazoned into my hippocampus, but I know nothing about them. So please, finally, tell me about these Swedes that have been occupying space in my brain for the last 40 years. First, only two of them are Swedes. See, I didn't know that. Hi-ho, Chad here. The Mummenschants are not Swedes. They are from Switzerland. Nick knows this too. I just inceptioned it into his brain right there, so he said the wrong thing, but he totally knows. I didn't. I hope I'm not mispronouncing anyone's names. Uh, but Floriana Frasetto was actually Italian-American. Mummenschants is a Swiss troupe. Told you he knew. And they were founded in 1972 by Bernie Schurch, Andres Bassard, and... Floriana, as we just mentioned, and they were the three that were featured on this episode. Mumenchan still exists. Wait, are they Swiss or Swedish? Uh, Swiss, I believe. Oh, okay. See, we figured it out. The Mumenchants is a visual theater and mime troupe, and they got their start in Paris in 1972. Bernie and Andres knew each other before that, but I think meeting Floriana, they started to get that chemistry going, and... Floriana still performs with them. They're still an active troupe today. They, I mean, COVID has obviously affected this, but they have plans for a show. We're recording this in February, but there are plans for a show, I believe, in Arizona in June. The type of theater they do seems like it's very adjacent to, to puppetry. And I, I guess depending on the kind of puppetry you do, it could be, but it's it's got more in common with like the, or I, I guess it is a type of mask theater, especially the way that they handled it. But I'm going to go back to my uh, college sophist thing for a second. Sure. Plato had two theories of narrative, uh, and I'm misquoting this, so someone's going to correct me on it later. But basically, you have mimesis, which is imitation, and diegesis, which is telling. And these are the two ways that you might be able to tell a story. And we tend to look at diegesis, or what you might call diegetic levels or diegetic positioning, in terms of how you tell the story or what's being here to tell the story, whether you have an active narrator or something's happening in scene. But mimesis is just the embodiment of whatever is going on. It's something that, by default, is a bit more abstracted, but no less effective. Everybody got that? This episode was recorded in, was it 1976? This is five years in of Moominchant's existing, and they've got such a strong command of what they're doing. Of the three performers that we see in this episode, Floriana is the only one that still performs regularly. Um, unfortunately, Andres passed in 1992, and Bernie stopped performing in 2012. As far as I know, he's, he's still alive and kicking. This was a fascinating episode, and it, it seemed like a really, really good capstone for the first season. 
I think the Muppet Shunts are one of the more, I'd say, famous, maybe infamous castings on the Muppet Show. Infamous guest stars. Really? Think about all the guest stars we've had and then look at them. That's another thing that we can actually draw attention to is this is the first time we've dealt with an entity rather than an individual. I discovered Daft Punk around the... T- and this, as we record this this week, we found out that Daft Punk split, which is upsetting but they've been giving us great music for a long time but i that uh that daft punk basement jacks era was really kicking into gear around the time that i stopped just listening to music that my parents would have found or that i would have heard on the radio and started seeking things out seeing the different ways that they would abstract things while having the beats to go with it this wasn't very uncomfortable to me like i i was able to just sort of take them as they came and engage with it i i really liked this episode this episode as a kid just, it just, it confounded me. Episode number 124, the season finale uh, with the Moment Chance, Produced again late November 1976, aired in the UK in January in New York in March, according to Muppet Wiki. And we're not at peak Muppet show, but we are, we are very close to its final form. These last kind of several episodes, like I said earlier, really feel like the Muppet show to me. Oh, if you were a Dragon Ball fan, you would have cut in a very specific audio clip, but it's okay, go on. And I will not, because I am not. <laughs> so you heard Nick there getting a little millennial snarky with me about Dragon Ball, so I went ahead and called his bluff and looked it up. Since I was talking about The Muppet Show reaching its final form, I looked that up and realized that, yes, there is a meme, a famous line from Dragon Ball Z, where the bad guy who's, like, I guess, powering up to the next level of bad guy and says, You fools, this isn't even my final form. Okay, cool. Let me find that clip. And I watched a bunch of videos looking for that clip. And he never says it. Like, he never says it. So then I went and looked it up again and found out that he never says it. It is a collective misremembering. It was never actually uttered that way on the show, but fans swear that it was. So for us old fogies, it's like how they never actually say, play it again, Sam, in Casablanca, or Empire Strikes Back, no one ever says, Luke, I am your father. You know, we we misremember the lines. Same thing for Dragon Ball. So I guess I'll just use some of the other audio from it, which is just, from what I can tell, a bunch of people screaming at each other. Generation X, signing out. So our opening musical number, something I love, is I love it when Scooter uh, takes the mic. Is this the first time we've really seen him do that? I mean, he did it with... Uh... He did fought with Fozzie. Oh, yeah. And he was with uh, Ethel for like a moment. Scooter and Floyd sing Mr. Bassman with the Electric Mayhem backing him up. Hey, Mr. Bassman, you said that music thumping to you it's easy. When you go one, two, three, ba-ba-ba-ba-ba. You mean ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba. Yeah! It's a song by a guy named Johnny Symbol from 1963. He was a Scottish-born American musician. According to Wikipedia, this was his uh, signature song, and it's kind of considered a rock and roll anthem. Even I have heard this one. And it's just Floyd and Scooter jamming. Oh, well, it don't mean a thing when the leader's singing. When he goes, I, 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 he, I, Hey, Mr. Bassman, I'm asking just one thing. Will you please teach me? Yeah, the way you sing does not much to say about it other than it's awesome. Yeah, this is a great way to open the season finale. You know, even though Scooter, from his inception, may not be a character that you think of as... Technically, if you look at him as a character, he shouldn't be on stage at all. His uncle owns the theater. He can be anywhere he wants to be, really. That's true. It's true. It is possible that this is all just like... He's like, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sing tonight. Or you're the gopher. He's like, I'm gonna sing tonight. When the leader's singing, or when he goes, I... 
spaceman. I think I'm really with it. Hey, Mr. Boom, 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 with a did it, did it, did it, did Come on, Mr. Baseman. Now I'm a baseman. What did you think about the backstage story? Are we going to put this in problematic territory? It's or? absolutely problematic. I loved it. It was great. <laughs> yeah. Because we've been seeing, like, the thing is, there's a, a certain virtue to crossing the line twice. We also, we get a bit more gonzo. Uh, but I, I loved, loved the backstage story this week for so many reasons. I, well, for the first thing we see is Fozzie is calling a line called Dial-A-Joke. <laughs> on the phone and he just says hey dial a joke and then he listens and he just breaks into laughter what also happens is it looks like a crane move with the camera mm-hmm. where the camera is kind of framing the whole backstage or, or fozzy and kind of where kermit usually stands and then the, it kind of cranes up to find piggy outside of her dressing room for the muppet show for first season muppet show it's a pretty impressive camera move we've been seeing them get a bit more ambitious with their camera work over the last few episodes but this is yeah this is definitely notable Piggy has found a note. My dearest Piggy, you must know how much I love you. Uh, uh, I cannot pretend any longer. I will wait for you in the dressing room, mon cher. Oh, it has happened. Oh, my Kermit has admitted his love for me at last. And now he waits within. Now, of course, she thinks this is from Kermit. Now, Kermit has given her no indication that this would be from Kermit, by the way. But who else would it be? A uh, certain zippy Muppet that is definitely not a Skeksis, though they might share a common ancestor. <laughs> yeah. Piggy comes in. She comes in all hot and horny, right? I mean, she's all hot and bothered when she comes into that room. Snorting as she goes. Oh, she's like, take me. She, calls, she's, she, her, she says something about her. <gasps> oh, come to my arms, my passion flower. There's some imagery. And then we get we get a first. We get a whoosh. We get Gonzo's signature whoosh. The sound that Gonzo the Great makes when he enters the scene. This is the Gonzo, 75% of the Gonzo. It's so much closer to the Gonzo we're going to know later. It's like it's got this stalker quality to it because he's got a crush on Piggy, but it's also so innocent and goofy. There's that, and there's also, like, there's this weird cross-section of, like, an almost childlike innocence... A dogged determination and a very hard masochism streak. Yeah. Gonzo's love language is touch, and it doesn't matter how violent the touch is. He just wants to be witnessed. The him and animal kind of share that. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of piggy getting a dose of her own medicine. And being completely oblivious to it. This is what she does to Kermit. So now we get to the first Mumanchan sketch. <laughs> if if you would have asked me before we started to explain it, I could not have. As soon as it started. It's right there in my hippocampus. <laughs> Been hiding, but it's there. Can you explain this one? You're getting a story basically in like proto emoticons. I liked it a lot, though. Um, yeah, this is one of the two big moment chance numbers. I wonder if I would appreciate it the same as I do now if I'd seen it when I was like six or seven. Here's what it felt like when I was a kid. It felt like it was for grownups. Mm. I'm not old enough to get this, or I'm not old enough to appreciate it, or it just... But it definitely left an impression on me. There is there is something to that. Like, I I don't know if I'd be able to get my brother to sit through this particular one, but my inner storytelling geek loved this. It's a less conventional way to tell a story, and it to me, at least, it's not something that's super opaque. I, I think is one of the bigger barriers to entry for those things. It's really hard on an audio 
program to describe the Mumminchons. Luckily, now that the show's on <laughs> Disney Plus, people can just go watch it if they're interested instead of just listening to us talk about it because I can't even describe it and walk you through it necessarily. It is 100% visual. For the theater of the mind, I guess I would say that you're you're looking at a story progression of, I, I guess, a dynamic or a conversation between two characters that is completely communicated and told through facial expressions and they're drawn on facial expressions. And that's an oversimplification that still doesn't do it justice. Fantastic! Incredible! They remind me of puppets. Mm. Puppets? I've always hated puppets. <laughs> ah, you're a traitor to your class. What class? I never even graduated. <laughs> so after that, we go backstage. Gonzo will not leave Piggy alone. Gonzo thinks that he got a kiss, but I watched that scene again. He doesn't get a kiss in the dressing room. It was a case of mistaken identity. <laughs> and then, yeah, and then he keeps asking her to hug me, Miss Piggy. Hold me. I will not hug you, you... Turkey? Oh. And then she says no. <laughs> Hold my hand, pig of my dreams. Will you be a twerp? <laughs> so as he was doing this and following her around, I don't know why, but I or I do know why, but I was reminded of uh, Janet trying to get with Rocky in Rocky Horror. Okay, yeah. yeah. Honestly, her vocal pitch isn't that far off from where Gonzo's would have been. It's all an about face on Piggy, because and Piggy's unrepentant in her pursuit of Kermit, but it's really funny. I think without that context, this stuff would probably be a little harder to handle. Oh yeah, and without a season's worth of that context, even. Like yeah. if, if Piggy had just started doing that last episode, and they're like, yeah. here's some laser-guided karma. Doesn't work. He is being creepy. Yeah, like in context, he is being really creepy. There's yeah. a very blatant ignoring of barriers. What he's doing and... is not right. Uh, not cool but there's also that slight bit of poetic just sort of like she does this to kermit all the time and yeah. she physically assaults him on top of that but it's the turnabout it's the it's the comeuppance that makes it not only digestible but delicious mm -hmm. but of course finally when uh piggy does does give gonzo the touch that he's asking for just touch me oh hog of my heart here's a touch for you wimp buzzard i'm ready <laughs> <laughs> she touched me she swung her porky pinkies and she touched me she had the touch she had the power i think this is the sketch you were talking about earlier the blue danube mm -hmm. in the library is that what that song's called blue danube waltz yeah by johann strauss it's most famous for being in uh, 2001 a space odyssey hmm we have a library. We have, uh, um, what's her name? Uh, Zelda Rose is the library. She usually plays like librarians or teachers. And in the library, we have Piggy, who has a cold. <laughs> Fozzie, who is like got a pencil and a. <laughs> Hilda, who's rustling a newspaper. <laughs> Nigel, who is chewing bubblegum. <laughs> and there are all these noises that are kind of annoying on their own. And so Zelda turns them into an orchestra. Well, she's making order out of chaos. She uses all these disparate sounds that these people are making and puts them in the form of the Blue Danube Waltz.
Piggy sneezes and coughs. Fozzie mm. blows his nose or taps on the table. That's what it was. I wrote COVID nightmare. <laughs> oh. I was like, Piggy, cover your mouth. All of them need to cover their mouths. No one's wearing a mask. Cover that snout, Piggy. We also get a almost successful Wayne and Wanda sketch, if only because they come to it late. Wayne and Wanda do come in at the end and uh, get, get some books crashing on them, but... Aaron Oscar and John Lovelady are both performing in this sketch, um, and this is going to be their last episode. So I'm going to apologize to whoever it was who's not going to listen to this, but someone pointed out that like the Mumma Chunts episodes just proves that if the Muppet Show was today, they'd have the Blue Man group on. And they're absolutely right. They would probably have the Blue Man group on. Yeah. I don't think that would be a bad thing, though. I'm afraid I just blew myself. <laughs> then we have a, a, something we've never really seen before. It's strange. Kermit comes out and says that the Mumichants do some very strange-looking things, and then he introduces three little pieces. It sort of felt like what, like it wouldn't have been out of place to see him in his uh, reporter coat. Yeah, I'm glad that they put this in though because we get a we get an idea just how physical a lot of this act is, but they don't really contort themselves in the other two sketches the way that they do here. Here, they're basically using costumes in their bodies to create some insects. They create like a the first one's like a caterpillar. They also, there was one that actually did seem like a puppet. It, it sort of looked like Aubrey, too. It's just very weird because Kermit's like, uh, The uh, Mormon shots do some very strange looking things. Things that look like this. And then it shows them just kind of doing their thing for a second. And then it cuts back and Kermit's like, and Then there's something that goes like this. There was nothing to these things they were doing enough to build a sketch around mm -hmm. or to build any kind of narrative or scene around. So they just kind of resorted to Kermit going. And how about this one? It didn't feel very organic. It wasn't something the show does very often. I was impressed, but it, it does. It shares the feel with some of those early episodes that had those technical proficiency sketches. Like, look at what we can do with the things that we have at our disposal. We aren't as concerned with telling a story here. We just want to do this. <laughs> Did you notice in these last two episodes, George has gotten real mean? George. So the thing about George in the last two episodes, and it makes me think that they knew that they were going to be cutting some of these things because George keeps looking at the camera and doing that really obnoxious laugh. It's almost like George is trying to keep his job. <laughs> oh, that's right. It's probably true, but it's sad. George, why is it that everything we discuss, you reduce to the level of the gutter? Uh, I just want to make you feel comfortable. <laughs> There is such riffraff here. Wouldn't you rather be associated with a better class of people? Yeah, but you were the only one not dancing. <laughs> but laughs his ass off while making very direct eye contact with us. Like, you think this is funny, right? Yeah, he's looking right at the audience like, eh? Eh, see, I made a joke. <laughs> and then there's a couple of whatnots who uh, are so mad they're going to blow their tops and you know, shockingly, they. Oh, and Animal's girlfriend, uh, her watch has stopped running, so he takes her for a run. <laughs> Very bizarre UK spot for this one. It's a song called When I'm Not Near the Fish I Love from 1947 by uh, Burton Lane and E.Y. Harburg from the musical Finian's Rainbow. An eel probably shot against a chroma keyed either black or green screen background printed superimposed on top of footage of real fish in like a fish tank this eel sings this song oh my heart is beating wildly and it's because you're here when i'm not near 
the fish, I love, I love the fish, I'm near. I found this to be actually kind of tedious. Yeah, it's... It didn't have any jokes. I don't think it was that so much as it felt like it would be more in place on Sesame Street, and I can't quite put my finger on why. Can we talk about the, them including that particular song on the episode about Gonzo chasing down Piggy, chasing down Kermit? Now we have what's quite possibly the most ironic talk spot. This is the only time all three Mum and Shants are together until the end. Like, I, will, I always remember as a kid being stunned when you get to the end and they reveal themselves and there's three of them because mm-hmm. every one of their sketches involves two people. Mm-hmm. And you're never sure which two. Well, uh, this is the part of the show where I usually spend a few moments talking to the guest stars, but in this case, the Mormon shunts don't talk, do you? Kermit tries to have a conversation with them, and they blow bubbles instead of talking and pull ping pong balls out of their mouths. It's all physical humor, but it's it's on brand. Kermit's kind of a jerk in this next scene. Yeah, but I don't, like, I'm sympathetic. Yeah. And also, there is definitely that part where you know that Kermit was just like, I can't not. Kermit hides Gonzo underneath the desk. I was just wondering if you'd like to go to dinner after the show. (laughs) What? Yeah, you know, a quiet, candlelit meal with soft music, perhaps some wine. (gasps) And then go dancing and walk (gasps) by the river in the moonlight. (gasps) Oh, I would love those things, my dear. Good. (gasps) So would Gonzo here. And I hope the two of you have a great evening. Oh, and uh, basically pushes Gonzo at her. Yeah. And Gonzo asks for another kissy kissy. I mean, Kermit's being a good wingman and getting Piggy off his back. It's not going to work, but... I think it's more for Kermit's sake than it is for Gonzo's. I also think he knows it's not going to (laughs) fly. He does, but like there's there's a gambit in play where Kermit says either Piggy is maybe going to see some charm in Gonzo or maybe Piggy is going to... Realize that this is uncomfortable and stop doing this to me. That's a lot of self-awareness he's asking for. (laughs) Hope springs eternal, but... That has thus far not been apparent. Piggy, while Gonzo is wrapped around her, yells... I'm gonna cut you in half for this, frog! Alright, we're getting somewhere. It is my distinct pleasure at this time to present Wayne and Wanda, of whom noted composer and conductor Leonard Bernstein wrote... These two are a manifestation of the musical mediocrity that passes for talent in our troubled times. Hmm. Wayne and Wanda come out and sing It's Only a Paper Moon from 1932. It's from a play called The Great Magoo. The play was a flop, but the song became a hit in 1933 when it was used in a movie musical called Take a Chance. I like a Wayne and Wanda sketch where Wayne gets it. (laughs) Where he's not just being super abusive? They're in a um, gazebo under a nice big crescent moon. And Wayne starts to sing, and, um... Say it's only a paper moon Hanging over a... The giant moon falls on his head. Made of paper. We get our last appearance of the Venda face, where Statler goes up to the Venda face to have his face rearranged, and it just punches him. Rest in peace, Venda face. <laughs> Piggy confronts Kermit and says, you know, that wasn't very cool what we did, what you did. And, and, and Kermit admits that. Gonzo's still trying. Amazing scene where she says something to Kermit and then she turns around and Get away from me, you giant geek! <laughs> Kermit, hmm? now that you've begged for my forgiveness, don't touch me, Chris! <laughs> Why don't we just kissy-poo and make up my darling? You're breathing on me! Kissy-kissy. <laughs> Kermit finally says, Piggy, I do not want you. 
Gonzo says the worst possible thing that any man can say in that situation. And can I have it? If we're talking about positive versus negative reinforcement, yeah. and all Gonzo really wants is attention from Piggy, Piggy assaulting Gonzo's attention. That doesn't make it a healthy attention, but he's he's got like a very single-minded goal. He just wants to be witnessed. <laughs> Piggy decides she's had enough of these two men, and we get a double chop. Very satisfying double chop. You know, she's a lot of things, but she will not be, she will not have her fate decided by men. That is known as getting two turkeys with one chop. Here's a Muppet Newsflash. Now, this is what I think of when I think of the Muppet Newsflash. I just like a good, solid Muppet Newsflash with a good, solid joke. Dateline Moscow. Sergei Lanovsky, whom the Russians claim is the world's oldest living human, celebrated his 196th birthday yesterday by taking a deep breath. Now we get the closing number, which is the Mumminshans again. I want to take a second and talk about just how impressive it is that they were able to go through all the permutations of crafting different facial expressions out of clay without necessarily being able to see. Um, they can see what the other is doing, but every... Every time they grab clay and add it on or try to smush something or anything else like that, they're doing it basically by feel. It's like that Lionel Richie video. God, don't get me started on that. That is going to be a long <laughs> tangent. That is going to be such a long tangent. Talking about potential boundaries being crossed. Yeah, that, that video creeps my wife out. I can't imagine why. <laughs> Basically, you've got one party that's very, very good at crafting their face and the other that is not, and they go through a lot of different permutations of things they can do. The one on the the left side is constantly messing up and having a very smushed face, and eventually they get to the point where I think the turning point is they turn their face into a sun by adding more clay to it, and the one that had been able to do a very good traditional mask gets super jealous and just like decides that it's time to attack the other party. It ends with them being stuck to each other, effectively, but it's just... I think one of the things that I like about the Moment Chant stuff is it's all kind of archetypal. Whether it's friends or admirers in that first sketch, I, I honestly read it as lovers, but like one per... or not even lovers, but one wanting the affection and, atten and attention of the other. You have a pretty clear arc, and it's a very simple arc. And in this one, too, the craft of what they're doing is very complicated, but the story they're telling is really, really simple. One of the best things you can do for your audience is give them something very stable to hold on to. You can bend a much larger number of rules without losing people as long as they have one concrete thing to hold on to and trust in. It was much more effective for me this time than it was when I was four. Well, that's about all the time we oh, have. Kermit, my love, I am so sorry about my little temper tantrum. Old Buzzard Beak was driving me crazy. <laughs> You drive me crazy, Miss Piggy. And he introduces the moment shots without their masks, and they're just three perfectly pleasant looking young people. Mm hmm. Um, and they can speak. Thank Thanks, you, Kermit. Kermit. It's, it's been, been great. great. Say, you guys really do work as a team. Piggy has to deal with more of Gonzo. You know something, Nasty Nose? I'm going to send you on a one way trip to the Geek Farm, Sippy! <laughs> Power! 
she looks at the camera and screams pig power. Pig power! Uh, did she raise a fist when she did that? Yeah, <laughs> she did. Yeah, she did. That was a choice. <laughs> Maybe it was a fist. I don't know if it was quite, you know, John Carlos, but it was definitely, <laughs> she definitely was uh, screaming. Pig power! I will say that the taller of the Mama Chance guy does look a little like Frankenstein. He reminded me of, uh, and I, this is nothing against the guy. He was phenomenal in this episode, but he did remind me of uh, the Bond villain Jaws a little bit. Yeah, Richard Keel, also who played Ega. If you've ever seen the movie Ega, it's one of the greatest episodes of Mystery Science Theater ever. I haven't actually seen that one. Watch out for snakes! It's a good episode to go out on. I was really, really happy with this episode. I finally got what I've been wanting all season, which was a little life into Gonzo. Now, granted, it was creepy, but some kind of spark, because he's had no spark. Next time. It's so hard. To say goodbye. To yesterday. We will be back next week with our season one wrap up, looking back on our first season of the first season of A Feat of Lunatic Daring and do a couple lists and talk about what things we liked, maybe some things we didn't like and uh, give a little short wrap up next week. So uh, until then, uh, I'm Chad. I'm Nick. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Feet of Lunatic Daring is written and produced by Chad J. Shonk and hosted by Chad J. Shonk and Nicholas Jackson. Music by Seth Podolitz. And a proud production of Antithesis Audio. Well, you must admit, Nigel, this does sound a little square. Playhound, play. Hound, play. <laughs>